Today is our fifth Sunday Q&A, and as the name implies, whenever there are five Sundays in a calendar month, I take your questions that you submit beforehand and do my best to answer them in a thorough and biblical way. This is one of the ways that we can kind of release the pressure valve, so to speak, of expository preaching, where I will preach verse by verse through a book, and because it does take a longer time to go deeper into the Word, we may not cover some of the topics or issues that you may be encountering or may uh, have questions about. And so we do this Q&A maybe three or four times a year. Uh, This morning I have, I believe, uh, five or six questions. Uh, Let's get right to it. Question number one. Do you think every Christian should own a book on systematic theology, and is there a particular one you recommend? Well, let me backtrack for those of you who are not aware of what uh, systematic theology is. A systematic theology book or textbook is a book that explains uh, various topics or categories of theology or doctrine. It's different than what is studied and known as biblical theology, which Uh, is also very helpful, but biblical theology, don't get confused by the word. Systematic theology is still biblical. Biblical theology is just the title of what we call this other way of studying theology. Biblical theology really more traces through the Bible from the first to the last page the history of redemption and then takes themes within each book as you go along, such as what are the major teachings and themes of Matthew Maybe you could, uh, within biblical theology, you would also group in different books from the same author, like Paul. So you, in biblical theology, you would study Pauline theology, so all the teachings of Paul, or Johannine theology, all the teachings of John. Um, but systematic theology takes uh, different topics or major theologies or doctrines, explains them through various verses. And so if you were to look at one chapter in a systematic theology, you would have verses from all over the Bible versus in biblical theology, you would just center on one book at a time. Um, Most seminaries, uh, at least most conservative seminaries, would teach systematic theology. It is really the core of their curriculum because even as a seminary is... Uh, producing or training preachers, you can't really learn how to preach unless you have the right theology. So theology often is uh, one of the first classes you will, you will learn. It's going to be multiple classes in uh, any seminary worth its salt. The general categories within systematic theology, the systematizing of the theology uh, would be, well, it would start with prolegomena, which is just first things just be an introduction to theology. Then you would have theology proper, uh, which is the study of God the Father, theology proper. Bibliology, of course, is the study of the Bible. Where do we get the Scriptures, the canonization of Scripture, things like that. You would have Christology, study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Pneumatology, as you know, pneumos is wind, breath, spirit. So pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. You have angelology, which, of course, is the study of angels. Um, That would include demonology. Some seminaries would separate demonology as its own class. Anthropology, as you studied, but perhaps not from the Bible, is the study of man. Hamartiology is its own category because it's very important and very significant. 
uh, from the word hamartia. It is the study of sin. Uh, Ecclesiology is the study of the church. Soteriology, the study of salvation. And finally, you have eschatology, which is the study of end times. Um, Do I think every believer should have one? I wouldn't say that it is necessary, uh, but it would be helpful. Uh, Even uh, systematic theologies that say that they are written for the layperson uh, can be very academic in nature. And so uh, that being said, if you do read one or or buy one, uh, I would like to give you a few pointers about this. Um, And and first, let me say, too, that there's a lot of systematic theologies out there. And, of course, you can buy specific books just honing in on one of those systems or, you know, like just Christology and even, of course, their books just about one aspect of Christ, the resurrection or whatever. And so uh, what we're talking about is a systematic theology that is going to be a very thick book with small font and thin pages because it'll cover all of this. Um, So here are some pointers uh, just so I can make this practical. And I think even if you're not interested in a systematic theology, these are good pointers in general. Uh, for just the Christian life and and studying any sort of doctrine or theology. Um, The first is uh, read it to increase your knowledge in order to increase your worship. In other words, knowing more about God is never an end in and of itself. Never for the believer. James 1 reminds us to be a doer and not merely a hearer of the Word. I bring this up because even outside of systematic theologies, this is a temptation for people Uh, within churches like ours and where we are strong on theology and doctrine and practice expository preaching. Uh, We can get filled with knowledge. We write down notes in sermons, which is a very good thing, Uh, but there's really no reason to write down the distance between two cities that Jesus traversed, right? We want to get so filled with the facts that we lose, uh, lose sight of the main goal, which is worship. Um, And so read these um, so that you can worship better, not just merely know more about God. Second, aim to be humbled and not prided. Worship and excitement about God can often become pride. And the proper study of theology will always result in awe and humility toward God uh, that will uh, hopefully should bleed into humility towards others other Christians that don't study theology, other Christians that are not like-minded, other uh, people who are not Christians and Christian cults, things like that. And because when we know more, we can debate more, we can teach more, we can correct more, we can judge more. Some of these are very useful tools when used properly, but all potentially dangerous tools when compounded with pride. Remember, Whatever you learn in a theology book, even if you read all of the theology books ever written, it is but a mere drop in the bucket of who God is. There are things about God that we can describe with human words, but we will never fully comprehend, at least this side of heaven. In Psalm 139, David was so overwhelmed by God's power and sovereignty that he declared in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high, I cannot attain to it. It wasn't knowledge about God, but he's talking about the knowledge that God has. You know when I'm sitting down and when I rise up is the context. Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us that the things God has revealed are for us 
so that we can obey. But then it reminds us there are secret things that belong to the Lord alone, things that He has not revealed for whatever reason, only He knows things that He couldn't reveal because our finite minds would not be able to grasp them. And so just uh, approach humbly and be humbled. Thirdly, don't replace time in the Word. Systematic theologies will, re- will support everything they say with Scripture. That's different than sitting down with just your Bible and reading the Word for the sake of the Word. Even as a pastor, I need to be in the habit of reading the Word for myself and not just reading, for example, 1 Corinthians and killing two birds with one stone because I'm reading that anyways for the study. It's important to be getting in the Word for yourself for the sake of the Word, just reading the Word and fellowshipping with God and learning that way. I would also add, as a practical note, it'd be good to have a, um, a systematic theology just as a reference. If you don't plan to read it from cover to cover, just as a reference, so you have on your shelf, like uh, we used to have encyclopedias or dictionaries on the shelf, and you can say, well, I can go somewhere. You know, now we have those things online, but I would caution you about looking up theology and, and biblical explanations uh, online. There's a lot of junk out there. Um, if anything, you know, Google your phrase or your word and add GTY or some other reputable uh, ministry that you, you trust. So all that was uh, beyond what was asked. My recommendation, the only one I can with a clear conscience at this time recommend uh, to you is Biblical Doctrine by John MacArthur and Dick Mayhew, who was the former dean of the Master Seminary. Um, And so that would be right in line with everything we believe. There are other systematic theologies. I'm not going to mention it. There's one that many of you know of, many of you own, has been the staple of conservative seminaries for decades, uh, still is today. Uh, but without me being there with you and saying you need to disregard his view on this point and this point and this point, I just can't uh, recommend it. So Biblical Doctrine uh, by MacArthur and Mayhew. It's a big, fat, white uh, cover book. Question number two. Is there an issue with taking part in forms of entertainment that glorify topics such as witchcraft, magic, etc.? Would this be a gray area dependent on the heart of the believer? And is this an issue of biblical concern? Um, yes, it is definitely a gray area that is largely dependent on your heart. Uh, we studied a lot about the issue of, of the gray, gray areas in Corinthians a few months back. And we saw that with all, as with all gray areas, we need to be uh, more careful there are bigger issues that need to be looked at. Um, in fact, you know, we tend to say, well, that's a gray area and just kind of be like, we don't, it's fine, it's a gray area. But the reality is we should be taking more time to think about our responses to gray areas because with black and white, we don't really need to. I mean, after all, isn't that phrase black and white? It's obvious. You don't do it or you do it. But with gray areas, we should probably take even more time, right? You don't think, "Uh, should I murder him or not? I don't know, Uh, pros and cons. No, you shouldn't, okay? It's black or white. 
But gray areas, we should think more, right? Who's around us? What does the Bible say? What are, and that's the thing. Sometimes the Bible doesn't say, and so we need to evaluate things. Because as we saw early in 1 Corinthians with simple acts like eating or drinking alcohol, you want to look deeper so as to not be legalistic. It does play into issues of loving others, testimony, preferring others, who's around, who's a new believer, who was beaten by their alcoholic father growing up, who grew up in a legalistic church and thinks drinking is sin. So we need to think about those things, whereas should I murder or not? You hopefully don't spend more than one second thinking about that. So when it comes to the horror genre or issues of witchcraft and things like that, uh, we need to be careful. We always need to be careful with what we're entertained by. If we are not bothered by gruesome violence or the sensationalizing of depravity, then there's probably something that you need to reevaluate in your own heart. Because Hollywood, and I'll include the publishing industry in this, will always push the limits. People who are fans of horror movies unless they're real, you know, they really like the old movies, but like it's just a modern average fan of horror movies, they're not going to be entertained by something that's already been done for the last 20 years. Push the limits, scare me, make it bloodier, make it gorier. Bigger and newer is what sells. These people are in it. They, they, they're not in it because, oh, we want to be nice and entertain people. They want money. And so they're going to do what makes the most money. And the reality is, if you are really into horror movies, if you watch some of the older movies, you'll probably just laugh because it's not scary. The special effects are bad. It's not gruesome enough because you have been desensitized to such things. And that's something we need to be careful of. We need to be careful when we are desensitized, frankly, to any sort of evil or sin, whether in our own lives of practicing it or, or observing it, it's very hard, uh, challenging in this world, especially given the topic we spoke on two weeks ago, especially in the Bay Area, being desensitized to the things that we see. But specifically with this issue, Galatians 5 lists sorcery as one of the defining deeds of the flesh. I think as believers, we, we don't want to over-highlight it and exaggerate it as some... Uh, some branches of evangelicalism do to a degree that it's, they see the devil everywhere. But we do need to understand that the, the demonic is real. And the Bible says we are, in fact, at war with them. They are at war with us. We are not to blame every sin on demons. Your sin is your fault. That's your choice. Um, but we have to understand that this is real. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so we, we just need to be extra careful, especially when it comes to entertainment, that we do not blur the lines between good and evil in this world which Hollywood does especially when it comes to things of witchcraft because there's the good, uh, the good people, you know, that practice the things that the Bible is saying are evil. And so I think we need to be especially careful with our children, that we raise our children so that they can discern fact from fiction, good from evil. Um, 
In the summer of 1999, I had the opportunity. This was before I lived in Albania, but I was visiting quite often. I had the opportunity to fly on a UN plane. Uh, we were walking to the plane. I didn't realize it'd be one of those small propeller planes. United Nations food program started popping the uh, bonine as soon as I saw that. Like this is going to be a bit horrible flight. Anyways, a plane to Kosovo just after the Kosovo War ended. If you remember, this is where the Serbian president attempted genocide. He was attempting to wipe out all the ethnic Albanians that live in Kosovo. And it was shocking what I saw. Village after village were taken to mass graves, entire streets that were just rubble that used to be popular places like Burlingame Avenue, just all the shops, just rubble now. Glass. I, saw, I remember seeing just this melted glass. It looked like artwork. And they said that the thing that the, the, the weapon they used to incinerate all of this, they said they would shoot something, it would stick on the wall, and then just burst into flames. They said those are those thick, if you've been to Europe, those thick European uh, Coke bottles, just completely melted, looked like it was water. Uh, we visit these villages where only women, children, and elderly men survive because the Serbians killed all the men, the teenage boys, so that the women could not repopulate. But one of the most interesting things to me was how casually the people would point out to us the dead bodies floating in the wells, things like that. Houses where, oh, there's, that's the basement where my husband and all of the men were locked in and burned alive. Right outside that window was all these graves about less than a foot wide because all they had left to bury was bones and shoes. And what struck me was that they had become desensitized to the death all around them. I remember when they, when they wanted to show us uh, the dead body floating in the well, I said, hey, come check this out. There's a dead body in there. And by the way, I know this is beside the point, but the Serbians did that to poison their, their, their drinking water, their rotting bodies and their water sources. But they were desensitized. And these, they were talking about their, their brothers, their dads. And that's the reality of being a victim of war. Why would we want to do that on purpose to ourselves for the sake of entertainment? Question number three. What does it mean to forgive yourself, quote, forgive yourself, and is that idea even biblical? The challenge with phrases like forgive yourself is it becomes semantics, right? People use it in different ways and in different contexts, and you're not sure what people mean when they say that. Um, so you can explain a phrase like this in detail, and then someone's like, uh, that wasn't my question. That's not what I mean when I say forgive yourself. And so uh, we need to be careful with, with semantics, right? You can, you can tell someone, hey, have a good day, and they think that's fine. But if you say, enjoy your next 24 hours, they think you're going to kill them tomorrow. Right? It's, but you're saying the same thing. Um, for example, I, I read an article once where someone that I, I really respect, I know many of you respect, but he wrote this blog article and he waxed eloquent on the meaning of the word vulnerable and why it was wrong and unbiblical and so many men's groups are now saying we need to be vulnerable with one, one another and what he did was define the word literally and say that the Bible actually teaches the opposite 
Because to become vulnerable becomes, means to become spiritually and physically weak. He said, why would we want that? Point taken, but the problem is nobody uses that in that context when they're talking about in small group. They just mean, let's share more of our lives with one another. Let's open up. Um, and so anyway, with that understanding in mind, let me uh, attempt to answer this question. First off the bat, this is the first place we ever, first uh, route we want to go with any question like this is the Bible never says you are to forgive yourself. That direct principle, that direct phrase is foreign to the Scriptures. Obviously, the Bible has a lot to say about forgiveness, about God's forgiveness. The full understanding of His forgiveness necessitates an appreciation for the fact that your sin is ultimately against Him. And that kind of bleeds into our understanding of forgive yourself. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In his great psalm of repentance after sin with Bathsheba and murdering her husband in Psalm 51, David says, against you, against you only, Lord, have I sinned. And so that's a good understanding of what forgiveness is whether we're forgiving others, God's forgiving us, or we're forgiving ourselves. When we're talking about sin and Christian forgiveness, we are primarily concerned about God's forgiveness of our sins against Him. Secondarily, though, and quite importantly, the Bible also puts much emphasis on us forgiving others. There's the famous question posed by Peter, and Jesus answers, no, forgive 70 times 7, not just 7 times as the law states. This was in Matthew 18. Mark 11 goes further. says, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. And so let's get more to the specifics of this question. I would never tell someone to forgive themselves as a pastor and counseling for semantic reasons. But I understand that when someone says that, they usually aren't saying to forgive yourself in the sense that you don't need God's forgiveness or you can forgive yourself of sins and then be cleansed in the eyes of God. What people usually mean by that is that they have this overwhelming guilt for something they've done in the past and they can't get rid of it. And when someone says forgive yourself, they just mean you need to stop thinking that way. Stop dwelling on the past. So, Ultimately, the, Christ, the reason Christians don't need to live under that guilt is because God has forgiven them. And so that's important to understand. So in that sense, the sense of trusting God's forgiveness so as to no longer feel guilty for past sins that God has already forgiven, you can forgive yourself in the sense of stop feeling guilty, but it's not true forgiving. It's just bad terminology. It's not to be understood literally, which is why I would avoid it in general um, within Christian circles. So with that in mind, rather than saying you need to forgive yourself, personally, I would point out the need for confession and the embracing of God's forgiveness, reminding people you have been forgiven by God. There's no, no longer any reason to feel bad about that. Learn from it, of course, but God has forgiven you. Don't live under this cloud of shame and say, I'm not worthy to serve. I can't be involved because people do that. They're so guilty about something God has already forgiven that they feel like they, they, they can't serve. They can't get married. They can't be in a healthy relationship. 
or things like that. Um, but that's, that may be how you feel, but that's just not true if you're a Christian. So I'd like to think that all of that is what Christians mean when they say that. I don't know, though. It is a reminder that words matter, not just for clarity and in uh, communication, but for biblical accuracy. Okay, question number four. Why is the Holy Spirit and its effect on our daily life not emphasized for us? So powerful is He in daily decisions and help in all decisions for believers and unbelievers seem unaware. Would love to hear consistent sermons on this. Great question, great point. Um, I would want to point out something that I, I've mentioned to you before. Uh, we need to be uh, careful, first of all, that we never refer to the Holy Spirit as it. He is a person. He is a he. He is our God. He is our Lord. Uh, you wouldn't refer to your wife as it. Let me see what it wants to do today, right? You wouldn't, some of you wouldn't even refer to your dog as it. He is he. Um, some of you don't refer to your cars as it. Um, it is true, the Holy Spirit is very involved in our lives. Each member of the Holy Trinity has different roles in submission to each other. You know that the Son was very clear, Jesus Christ, that He submitted to the will of the Father. The Bible is clear that the Spirit submits to the will of the Father and the Son. And one of His roles in submitting to the plan of God the Father, the Holy Spirit, is that He guides, He empowers, He convicts in, in believers today. He is, practically speaking, the most active in the believer today. The reason you don't hear more about Him in this church is simple. Uh, I practice expository preaching and not topical preaching which means whatever the book, chapter, and passage we're in is what I'm going to exegete and explain, and I will do so slowly. When we get to a passage on the Holy Spirit, there will be more about Him. But for example, if you've just joined us within the last few weeks, you would think, what's this church's deal? All they care about is spiritual gifts that they think don't even exist anymore. <laughs> but that's just because we're going verse by verse slowly through the entirety uh, of the Scriptures. Okay? Question number five. In Bible times, why was it permitted for men to have multiple wives and they were still seen as righteous in the eyes of God? If God created Adam and Eve first to be partners and no one else was in the mix, why did these men, who were so-called believers in the true God, practice polygamy? Weren't they just giving in to their sinful desires and the culture of the day? A very important principle to understand in this is there is a difference between what God allows and what God wills. God allows you to sin, but that's not His will. Okay? He doesn't strike you dead or stop you physically from sinning. He allows it. He sent His Son to die for it. But that's not His desire. That's not His will. And this is true of polygamy as well. There's an understanding that those who do wrong 
can also be believers and be considered righteous. Kind of like every single person in this room. And so when we look at people like David, multiple wives, grave and gross sins, they say, but he was a righteous man. We, we re, I mean, all of them, right? These sins, these lies, the deceit, the multiple wives. But look at us. We are declared righteous. We are righteous in the eyes of God. They say, well, we're not like David. Well, there's no modern David, but you look at, okay, fine, look at people who are well-published on, on the radio, uh, you know, followed, churches of thousands, conservative pastors. They're not perfect either. Some of them are very clear of their convergence experiences involve things like the things we've been studying, right? Adultery, homosexuality, drugs, whatever it may be. Polygamy does go against what is the clear example of Adam and Eve, although one could argue and say, well, there were only two people in existence at that time, one man and one woman. So you, you could say maybe polygamy was okay, there just wasn't the opportunity because there w- were only two. But the argument doesn't hold water because God's clear direction elsewhere in Scripture and especially in the New Testament. For example, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus give us the husband of one wife as a qualification of spiritual leadership. Ephesians 5 that great passage on the role of the husband and wife, speak of them in the singular. And also, what's the illustration there? Of Christ, one person, and His love for the church. Could have said all believers, plural, all Christians, plural, but it sticks with the singular. To continue the highlight, highlight and illustrate the one man, one woman relationship and illustration that's being used there. There is an indication of God's patience on polygamy uh, based on Jesus' teaching on divorce. In Matthew 19, the Jews were questioning Him because Jesus basically says, don't divorce. And then in Matthew 19, uh, some of these Jewish leaders say, well, then why did Moses in the law allow us to say, have this, they call it the certificate of divorce. It was just allowable divorce. And you remember Jesus' answer? He says, because of your hardness of heart. So we have indication that there was this patience of God allowing certain things that He didn't want because of the hardness of their hearts. We see a similar idea in Romans 1, for example the patience of God. Kind of a secondary issue too is, um, although it is different, you can connect this to why was it okay for uh, people in the Old Testament to marry their first cousins. And even biologically, if you were to have children with your first cousin today, there's a high chance of uh, mental handicaps and different forms of physical and mental uh, disabilities and retardation, okay? But it didn't happen back then. 
And that was also allowed, though it's forbidden now. It was allowed because you're closer to just the world being inhabited by two human beings. And so there were certain uh, just familial, related to the family, and cultural things that God had patience over as they worked themselves out to the point you get to the New Testament, it says, no more. You can't do this anymore. Okay? But ultimately, the, the, the question is answered uh, in the same way that we're considered righteous despite our sin. They weren't called righteous because of the polygamy. David is not righteous because of his adultery and his murder and his many wives and concubines. It was other things, his faith primarily and his godliness, his trust in in God. In light of what we talked about uh, last week or two weeks ago regarding homosexuality, you can say, well, then why is are those who are practicing homosexuals called unrighteous? Well, simply because the Bible, as we saw two weeks ago, is clear that those people are unrighteous. And it's not about, you know, it's apples and oranges. You can't say, well, this is a sexual sin, this is a sexual sin, they were righteous, so don't, aren't they within the circle of righteous too because they're just practicing sexual sins? No, we need to stick with what the Bible clearly uh, says and addresses. Right. I want to finish off with question number six. I'm going to spend the rest of our time on this one. A scripture tells us that we are not to worry about our life and needs, Matthew 6, 25 through 34, or be anxious about anything, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Is there such a thing as worry or anxiety that is not sinful? And if so, how do we make sure we don't fall into the sinful kind of worry slash anxiety? Again, we need to be careful with semantics here. We use the word worry when people aren't really worrying, right? Like, uh, oh, I got to go. Let me clean up. Oh, don't worry about it. We're not talking about actual worry or an anxiety, right? So we're not talking about this. I'm not talking about this where we just use it in casual. When it, if you're truly talking about genuine worry, right, genuine anxiety, whether it's to the extreme where you're kind of you, 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 cold sweats, you're wringing your hands, you can't think, you can't function, or it's just more of a mild thing, it's just kind of this nagging thing, you, you, you kind of, you know, worry. You understand it. Uh, anxiety. Um, the verses are straightforward. It's all sin. Why? As with any, well, because the Bible says so, specifically in the verses mentioned, but as with anything, you go back to the big picture and you have to ask, what is the bigger issue that this violates or this addresses? What is, this, what is the character of God or, or what is the big issue sin? Now, worry, the Bible says worry and anxiety are sin, but there are bigger issues at play. And what is the bigger issue here? God's faithfulness and sovereignty. The big picture, worry and anxiety are sins because they lack trust in God. So basically, the solution to not fall into worry or anxiety is to trust God. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. 
Let me be more specific, okay? Because you know this. When you don't trust in God, let me break it down. When you don't trust in God, okay? As a believer, you always trust in Him. But maybe it's a specific issue that's causing anxiety. If you don't trust in God, who do you trust in? Who is your only other option? Yourself. So what happens when you trust in yourself and a situation comes along that you cannot handle? There we have the problem. Keep in mind when I say trust in self, I also mean not just your abilities, but also your family, your finances, your connections, things like that, okay? Something you can do about, do about it. So when a situation comes that you can't handle and all you trust in is you, you have no choice but to be anxious or worry. Because if you're the only person there, you either handle it or you can't handle it. And if you can't handle it, you worry. But if you add God and everything you know about God into the equation, you have a second option, and that second option is always the best option. This does not mean you throw out responsibility. The Bible is very clear with thousands of commands that we have a responsibility. We need to be good stewards. We need to strive and be excellent and then excel still more. But all of that is with a trust in God. And in order to trust God, you need to know what He says about the things you worry about. And so I want to turn to the passage that's mentioned in this question. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. We'll start in verse 26 through 34. Matthew 6, 26 through 34. And he gives this great illustration that I think we kind of just fly past. But it's really the, the bulk of the, the lead-in to his argument. He says, Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to this life? I think that's great. We, we have similar phrases today. What does worry do? Nothing. If anything, I believe there's medical evidence that it removes days from your life. It doesn't help. Verse 28. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Stop there. What he is saying, he's saying God created and cares for these animals. His sovereignty and His sustaining hand is not just in our lives. It's not just humans that need Him every day for our blood cells to flow and our hearts to function. It is those animals. We're just the only ones who recognize it and can talk about that and pray about it. And so it's easy to look at the birds and say, well, God just created nature and just let them go and the ecosystem takes care of them. No, God takes care of them. And his point is, these birds, 
these flitting, useless, obnoxious birds, they're taken care of. And then this grass, you ever watched, you ever, you ever smelled the grass in spring after, after someone has mowed the lawn? Smells great, right? You know why it smells like that? Because there's 10 pounds of it that's going to be thrown away and composted. It's trash. And he says, if this grass of the field, the wild grass, right? We can never grow grass, but in the wild, it's perfect, right? It dies in front of my house, but in the wild, right there, see? Look, wonderful. If God cares for that, right? You even go beyond that, not where there's man-made sprinklers, just out in the hills. And one day it's green and lush, and one day it's just burned or thrown away or dies and it's brown. Such worthless stuff, and you are so much more worth so much more to God. Let me paraphrase. He's saying, hello? Think about it, right? It's in the Greek. (laughs) Then he goes in verse 31. He says, do not worry then saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Kind of like 1 Corinthians 10.31, it is setting forth eating and drinking and clothing and worrying about these things as things for, as kind of the basic things, as representative of all things you could be worried about. Because I know that most of you are not worried about how you will eat tomorrow. You're worried about your mortgage. You're worried about COVID. You're worried about your, your, your sick child, your you know, your sick relatives, whatever it is. You're worried about fines that you are slapped with. You're worried about the fact that you haven't had uh, an income for the past year and a half. Let me give you some underlying principles. Number one, free yourself from the love of money. You say, why in the world is this? Because Matthew chapter 6 is within the context of loving money and where Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. You may be worrying because of your love of money. You say, well, I don't think that's true. I, I just, I worry because I want my kids to have stuff and the best schools and we need a home. How do you purchase those things? It could be the love of money. The love of money includes your desires and expectations for what your life, your spouse's life, and your children's lives will look like in terms of homes, schools, clothes, things like that. Free yourself from the love of money. When people say or think that it's only the wealthy that can fall into the sin and temptation of the love of money. They are mixing two separate and distinct teachings of Christ into one. Anyone can love money. In fact, I would argue from an unofficial poll that I've taken 
in my just observations, if I can use terms that we're familiar with, the middle class love money more than the upper class in the Bay Area. We struggle with that, and we need to be careful with that. Again, don't go too far with this and say, I'm going to quit my job, not going to buy my kids anything, just going to let go and let God. That violates other scriptures. But I think it'd be wise to dig deeper and to see if the love of money uh, is something that's in our lives. Number two, verse 33 says, and this is number two, prioritize the kingdom of God. Prioritize the kingdom of God. Prioritize God's will, His worship, His glory. Because aside from the fact that worry itself is a sin, those who tend to worry also sin in other areas. It bleeds into other areas. Anger at your spouse or your boss or the IRS, whatever it may be. Those who worry tend to diminish in their service because they're consumed with this issue and trying to fix this issue, which, again, let's be honest, often means, how do I make more money? It leads to lack of love, lack of worship, lack of submission, pride. In other words, the focus becomes not God and honoring Him, but that issue. It is consuming. And so prioritize the kingdom of God. Start serving more. Start worshiping more. Start getting into the Word more. Start thinking about God's character rather than the character of that looming issue. Number three, of course, pray. Pray. Would you turn with, to Philippians 4 with me? Philippians 4, 6-7. through 7. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, also mentioned in the question, says, be anxious for nothing. And that's where we know it's, it's sin to be anxious. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this goes back. You say, well, I've done this. I pray, in fact, this has become the only thing I pray about, and I still worry about it. But are you praying biblically? This goes back to trusting God. True believing prayer is just that. It's believing. It's not just lip service. It's not just saying, well, this verse says I'm supposed to do it, so I'm going to do it. I know I'm supposed to pray about it, so I'm going to pray about it, but I don't really believe he's going to do anything about it. Right? It's not like going to your manager because you know, everyone says, oh, go ask him for a raise. But you go to the manager, ask for a raise. You know he doesn't have the authority to do that. You know the company doesn't have the money for raises right now. And so, but you just go through the motions all the while trying to fix it yourself by looking for another job. Again, focusing on your own abilities. God can answer your prayers. You have to believe that. Trust that. Look at your past to see that in order to deal with worry and anxiety. They say, I do. I, I, I do that. And I pray. And it still doesn't really help. Well, number four, be thankful. Look at verse 6 in Philippians 4. Let your, uh, everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. 
This is not unique to this verse. Prayer always involves thanksgiving. There are passages in where prayer is called thanksgiving. This isn't just going through whatever system you use in prayer and oh, I got to rattle off some things I'm thankful for. Be thankful. It's this attitude of gratitude and appreciation. And when you truly dig deep into that, it removes worry because it focuses on what God has done rather than what you wish He would do or you're afraid that He won't do. Be thankful. Count your blessings. You've heard this. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you've heard this since you were a kid. Count your blessings, but really do that. Not just number them and list them, but, but really think about that. And we tend to not be thankful for things that everyone gets or has. Food, gasoline, driving places, what, or taking the bus, BART, scooter, whatever. The ability to walk, the ability to breathe, a roof over our heads, a mattress. And part of being thankful is stop complaining. We complain about more things than we are thankful for. You complain about your mattress because you wake up with a, with a, a crick in your neck. Right? You complain about the commute. You complain about gas prices. You complain about your job. You complain about the taste of the food, the temperature of the food, the slowness of the waiter, the waitress. You complain that your kids don't obey, that they did this, and then when they do obey, they didn't do it well enough. Right? You, we, we're complainers. We're whiners. So being thankful isn't just saying, well, I'm, oh, I'm so, I'm, yeah, you know, I'm thankful for this, this mattress, but, oh, man, we need a new one, right? And, and, and it's, not just, it's not just thankful like, oh, yeah, I'm thankful because we got it on sale as a really good deal. Why can't we just thank God for things because they're things that we don't deserve and God gave them? Right? We, we always need to find another thing. Just be thankful because you deserve help. How about that? And He gave you socks and shoes. I got to cut my, cut my nails again. Would you rather not have toenails? Then you'll really be thankful for socks. Bleeding all over the place. And then fifthly, obviously, trust. And I see this because back in Matthew, he says, you of little faith. Who's he talking to? People who worry. You of little faith. Can I illustrate this for you? Maybe this doesn't resonate with, you know, specifically, but you, I think you'll get the point. As a kid, you ever stood outside your school or outside a birthday party or something and all the kids are gone? And your parents haven't picked you up yet? You know, no cell phones or anything like that? And you start worrying? You're like, where are they? And all the what-ifs start flooding in, right? What if they forgot? I don't know how to call them. I don't remember their number. What if they're not home? They said they were going shopping. What if they got in an accident? You know, all this stuff, right? You start worrying. And then a car pulls around the corner and you're like, that looks like mom's, ah, it's mom. And all of a sudden, all the worry has disappeared. 
God is all-powerful. He is ever-present. He is all-knowing. And you may not feel like it. You may not see it. But His car is parked right in front of you all the time. There's no need to be to worry. And to circle back, I think trust circles back to where we began. Sometimes we worry because of a need for control. Some of us need control because we don't want to worry. Some of us worry because we just have to have control. We have to have control over everything. We don't want discomfort or any sort of nebulous, nothing confusing. We need to know exactly how much we have, how much we're going to get, how much is going out, what's going to happen in the next year, two years, three years, and if not, we get anxious. And if I may be so blunt, it's because we're arrogant and we want to be in control. It's not wrong to plan, but plan loosely. Stop having to to be in control all the time. Because how many times have you planned everything out and it's gone exactly as you want? Trust the Lord. If you're still in Philippians 4, look at the next verse. One of my favorite verses in all counseling. Philippians 4.8 Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Not the what-ifs, not the unknown. Right? Parents, man, this is hard for us, right? He's 10 minutes late. Oh, he must be dead. Got hit by a car, kidnapped, traffic, right? All the what-ifs start flooding in. And right there you have uh, the very first one is whatever is true. That's not true. You don't know. It's not true. Stop thinking about that. What if we have to sell our home to pay for this? What if we go bankrupt? What if the, the kids have nothing to eat? What if, what if, what if? That's not true. This, this is a bad word in our house for our kids and for us now. But I'll say it here. Shh, don't tell my kids. Sometimes, because of this verse, you need to tell yourself, shut up and focus on what is true. And it can start in the midst of your worry and exa- you know, the anxiety and that, that rabbit hole that you're going through, that downward spiral. The first thing true, if you can just muster up the strength to say, God is good. God is good. Roger, shut up. God is good. He's got this. He's got this. For starters. And then work your way up. Okay? A very real, very difficult issue. I would close with this. If you're the spouse of someone who struggles with this, if you're friends with some of your children who struggle with this, and you're a Christian, they're your Christian, it is not good enough to say, hey, worry is sin. You need to stop. Trust God. Trust God. Help them through these principles that I've mentioned uh, this morning. Hey, let's talk about this. What's going on? What are you thinking? What, your mind is racing. Tell me what is going on in your mind. Let's look. Let's, let's walk around the apartment. Remember this? Remember this? 
We got married and you said, I've always wanted one of these. We're never going to be able to afford one of this. And here it is. Remember that, remember that time? Remember that time we're in this and we prayed and the small group prayed and all of a sudden, boom. God provided. And perhaps even more importantly at times, remember that time you were so stressed, you were so worried that that thing would happen and it happened. But we grew from it. We're alive. We're thriving. God is faithful. He is good. So we need to help each other through that. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for the clarity of Your Word on so many practical issues. Thank You that we have practical issues and Your Word speaks to them and gives us guidance. Whether it's learning more about You through a systematic theology or dealing with our understanding of sexual sin, both historically other nations and our own nations, or it's our struggles with anxiety, whatever it may be, may we ultimately seek to honor You and look to Your Word for the answers. Comfort us. Grow us. Give us a greater and deeper trust in You. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.